you know, we are a bit in a series uh, entitled, You Will Be My Witnesses. We've been kind of working our way through uh, the book of Acts kind of slowly. And uh, I know some of you are thinking, gosh, he says this every week. Well, that's because every week we have new people and they have no idea what we've been doing. But that's what we've been doing. We've been kind of working our way through the book of Acts, and we've managed to get ourselves to, or I should say that the Lord has gotten us to, Acts 2, 14 to 21. That's where we're going to be at today. We're going to study that text, and it's going to be great. One of the things that's really cool about this passage is that we have, uh, we're going to be given the, the special privilege and ability to examine like the very first Christian sermon. That's what we're going to be looking at at Peter's sermon, and that's really for a lack of better words or terminology, that is really the first uh, Christian sermon to be preached. And, and we have the special privilege and honor to be able to examine it. And we'll look at it over the course of a, a couple of weeks because it's just a, it's just a massive uh, bit of scripture. And uh, to do it justice, we've got to, we've got to slowly look at it. But we're going to be looking at uh, 2, 14 to 21. We're going to be focusing on Joel's prophecy uh, today. What is, before we get into this, what is the, the main purpose of God's church according to the scriptures? Why does it exist? What is its mission? What is, what is its goal? Why did God ordain it and, and bring it into existence? And why has he empowered it and done these things? There's a lot of confusing uh, opinions or angles on why the church exists out there. A lot of different views on why God ordained it, why it exists, what its mission is, what its purpose is. And, and as a new church, it's really vital that we understand what, or, or according to the scriptures, why the church exists, what its main purpose is. Uh, some people seem to think that the church is just pretty much about worship. It's just about gathering. That's why it's here. It's just about this place where we come together, all these Christians come together, and we just worship week in and week out, and so the main sort of goal of the church is, is to worship God. Um, they, they think it's that. Uh, uh, some say or believe that it's to be an organization that, that exists for the sole purpose or primary purpose of, of human justice, uh, social justice, or, or charity, that the church exists to be an entity that's all about social justice and all about charity and, and, and those kinds of things, you know, rewriting the wrongs in society and culture and those kinds of things. And that's kind of a big thing today, you know, where uh, the church is just really about social justice. And when I say these things, I'm not saying the church isn't about these things. I'm just saying that they think that that's kind of the main purpose of it. Some say that the main purpose of the church is to rehabilitate uh, the, the culture, our, our communities, is to rehabilitate them. It's to change the way that they think and the way that they operate, uh, the way that they function. It's to rehabilitate them. Um, some believe that. And, and so what churches do, because that's kind of the main thrust of their church, is that they initiate, organize, fund, and empower lots and lots of programs, lots and lots of ministries in that local body uh, to do these real rehabilitative sorts of things uh, in, in the community or on that premises. Um, some say that, and this is one of the ones that uh, I, I don't know, but some say that the church, the main purpose of the church is to be Jesus until he returns. And uh, that, so, that, you know, it's this idea that, you know, okay, we're like the body and we see that terminology in scripture, but 
You know, we're to be sort of the acting Jesus while he's away at his resort in heaven, you know, and, you know, he's got the cabana, you know, and he's got the drink with the umbrella and he's chilling up there. And, and like, so now we have to be this incarnate Christ, you know, living and breathing and doing his ministry and all that. And, and, and quite frankly, um, none of those things that I mentioned are the main purpose of the church. None of them are. None of them are the main reason for our existence as a church, for our uh, purpose as a church, our goals, and our ministry. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 to uh, 20, very clearly articulates what the main purpose of the church is. And that is to what? It is to go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. So the purpose of the church is to take the gospel out and to make disciples with the gospel and through the gospel and to baptize them into church community, baptize them into church life, into church community, into church fellowship, and then to build up the saints by teaching them all that Christ commanded and how to obey those things. That is the main purpose of of the church. Now, what means does God, or do the scriptures, God saying through the scriptures, what means does he use to make disciples? What means does he use to bring people through that process of uh, the beginning point of faith uh, and into maturation? He uses, uh, some people think a lot of different things, uh, relationships and those things, and I think those are important in discipleship, but he uses one thing in particular, and that's the preaching of his word. And that seems to be the one thing that is under the most attack in churches today. You can go to just about any church, especially some of the larger ones. And when I say these things, I don't say them with a condemning spirit whatsoever. Because I think it's God, God is working through a lot of different churches, and a lot of them do things differently. But on any given Sunday, you can pretty much go to a, a church, and, and you can witness a hip-hop dance, you know, I mean, this, this is what happens when you show up at church, you know, and you're, you're in the congregation and you're watching. And, 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 and what we're seeing today is we're seeing uh, interpretive dance, you know, and hip-hop and stuff like that. I'm not saying that that's evil, wicked, or wrong. We, uh, some churches, man, have invested a lot of money into lighting, so it's almost like going to Pink Floyd and seeing the laser show, you know, and, and stuff. And then, you know... Uh, Worship guys these days uh, are starting to look more and more like rock stars. I mean, they got not just skinny jeans. They got skinny, skinny jeans. You know what I mean? They're like, I can see the veins in his leg, you know? And then, you know, the hair and then, you know, and, and just, and so they're leading, you know, and they're doing their thing. And I remember Mark told me one time he was at a gathering and there was a guy that was like putting his foot up on the monitor playing. And I'm like, this is worship, you know? What's this guy doing? You know, he thinks he's, you know, he thinks he's ACDC. Right? But, you, you know, you, you see the lighting, and then there's the dance components and those things, and I, they, they mix them up at churches, and then you've got the, you know, the, the rock star worship leaders, and you feel like you're really kind of watching a, a show, right, and all these things. And, um, and, and tragically, in a lot of those places, uh, they've pretty much reduced down the sermons down to a certain amount of time, and some churches just won't preach for more than 20 to 25 minutes. I don't even, like, get warmed up at the 20-minute mark. I'm just starting to cook, you know, and so 20 minutes, oh, the sermon's over, and now we get to watch, you know, you know, and, you know, 
right? You know, and they got all, they, I'm just telling you, that, that's how it is. It's like, okay, the Word of God is like supposed to be like the central thing. It is the means by which God not only saves through the gospel, but that he sanctifies and grows up and brings people to maturation. And so let's make room in our worship services for all this other stuff, which is kind of fun and cool, but let's take the preaching of God's Word and make it a smaller, simpler thing. And not only that, so often in churches today, the preaching of the Word is not done in a fashion that I think does the Word of God justice, in that it's not like an expositional survey of Scripture or doctrine. It's like, okay, we're going to work through the book of Romans or anything. No, no, no. No, it's seven points on how to have a better marriage. It's six ways to improve this in your life and, and this and that. And it's just all of these little pragmatic, topical kind of solutions to better people's lives. That's what it's really come to in so many places. And, and, and you know, go to a church and find a guy who's going to preach for an hour. It's kind of hard to find these days. You know, it's kind of hard to find where someone just, like, works the Scripture and kind of massages the Scripture, lets the Holy Spirit move and work and take that truth and apply it to people's lives, and there's transformation and salvation and all these things happen. It's just a rare thing anymore to find a church where someone just really proclaims the Word and doesn't have all the, the other things going on there. And so, as a, as a church, as a new church, we've got to be so absolutely diligent in keeping the main thing, the main thing, man. You know, hip-hop's cool, but it doesn't save anyone. You know, Pink Floyd lighting is, I, I could sit there and look at that all day. <sighs> you know, I could just, I'm aloof, I, you know, and I have ADD, so I can just, you know. But it, it, it just, laser lighting doesn't save people. It doesn't sanctify them. You know, and another thing, and this one's a, a bit more of a rub for me, is that it seems like the church today is really addicted to not just technology and stuff, and I know they always use, it's always cloaked with, we have to invest all this money in technology because that helps us to get the gospel out there. And sometimes I think, no, it's just because you like technology. Who doesn't? Who doesn't like flat screen TVs and Blu-ray and all? I mean, I do. You know, but the creature comforts in the church today. Um, there's a, a, something I read in a book, and some of the people here read it with us because we went through it in our home group a while ago. And there's a story a guy tells, and, and, and he, this guy went to some different churches, and he was visiting churches and interacting with pastors. And, uh, and he gets to this one church, and he starts interacting with this pastor, and the pastor just kept going on and on and on about the new parking lot they built. And the guy's like, yeah, that's really cool, the visiting guy. That's really cool. So, you know, tell me about all the things that God's doing here and, you know, saving people and, and, and raising them up and leaders and men are becoming elders. Tell me about these things. And the, while he's telling him this, the guy's at the window in his office staring at the parking lot. And the guy goes, you know, it's taken me 10 years to raise up the money to get that parking lot. And he just went on and on and on and on about the parking lot. And the visiting pastor came to the conclusion that the parking lot was this guy's crowning achievement. You know, parking lots don't save people. The gospel does. Uh, uh, another instance is where churches will spend lots and lots of money on comfort things and stuff, and they'll have, you know, great furniture and all that. And I'm not opposed to that. I love sitting in great furniture. But it, it seems like sometimes the idea is that we can't do anything unless we have those things, or we can't move forward unless we have it. And there's another instance where a guy said, we've got all that nice furniture out there because it helps us to spread the gospel. It helps us to make disciples. And the guy's reply to him was, no, that just makes consumers comfortable. 
That's what those leather-flanked chairs do and those things. And so what is my point? My point is, is that it's easy to get off track. It's easy to sell out for lesser things. It's easy to give in to the consumeristic bug and to begin to spend money on things that probably aren't going to help or to just to get off track and focus on things that aren't helpful, focus on things that, that God does not utilize for his glory and for his gospel. And so as a church, we've got to just keep the main thing the main thing. And it's amazing in our passage, when we get to this passage, when we get to this text, we see that the very first Christian sermon, that's the very first thing that takes place in the church. I mean, we haven't even seen the church explode yet. Uh, the church explodes numerically. Um, God explodes it through the fruit of this gospel presentation of this sermon. And so the church really begins to be made manifest at the preaching of this word. But the very first thing that's done is the preaching of the word. Peter didn't organize like some sort of an event where we had laser lighting and you know, hip, no, none of that happened. He just comes out and he preaches the word and God uses that vehicle in a mighty way. You know, he does. And so we're going to get to examine that. I'm very excited about that. Now, as we, as we begin to, to move through our text, we're going to discover some of these things. We're going to get to see... Um, just how God uses the preaching of his word to initiate change in people's lives, how he uses the gospel. And, and my hope and prayer for us as a church is that we will not only be dazzled and mesmerized by the sermon that Peter preaches, uh, because it's pretty amazing. I mean, just the knowledge and wisdom that this guy has, his clarity is amazing and all those things, that we won't just grow to appreciate the sermon itself, but that we would uh, gain a great conviction as a, as a body that we got to keep the main thing the main thing. We see the fruit of what preaching the word does, therefore we must remain steadfast, hold our position, and keep the gospel, keep the word of God at center at all times, and not give in. And that doesn't mean we can't add some components to our worship, but may we never, ever do that and sacrifice the preaching of God's word at the same time. And I love that part because I'm a preacher. So I've just said we're never going to do that, so I get to preach all the time. And do it, right? Self-interest is always there. So let's, let's read our text, and, uh, and then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll get to it. Acts 2, 14 to 21. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And he said this, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. <laughs> That's funny. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So just a quick context. The passage that we studied last week, Holy Spirit came down on 120 people, filled them, these, this 120, this is like the first church, this little 120, I call them the church of the upper room, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in foreign tongues, gifted to do these things so that they could go out and minister during the Feast of Weeks. And, and some people there were marveling and blown away by what was happening. They couldn't figure it out. They were like, wow, this is amazing. Look at these people are speaking. I'm French. They're speaking the gospel. They're speaking about the miraculous things of God, and I'm French, and they're speaking it in my language, and they're from Galilee. What the heck? This is amazing. This is awesome, unbelievable. And then there were some people there going, these guys are drunk. So that's why he said that. And then, and then what he does is he begins to transition into what's taking place, and he begins to tell of the prophecy of Joel. And he says, and in the last days, it, 
shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And then he says in 19, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And then our last verse says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Love that part. And Bruce read that whole text and that whole context for that. Let us pray as we begin to study. Father God, um, thank you for this opportunity to, to proclaim your word, God. Um, I pray, God, that, uh, uh, that you would use the preaching of your word here to, to initiate change in the lives of all of us. Uh, that you would transform us through the power of your word. That you would make us new. Uh, May your gospel go forth and bring about great fruit in our own lives, in the lives of those who call this place their church, their home, in the lives of those who are visiting today. May your will be done, Father. Guard my lips, God, as I present your word. I want to say not one unwholesome thing. I want to preach your word and your word alone. And help me to do that, Lord. I'm a man of loose lips. Help me. May we now honor you and bless you with our attentiveness, our attentiveness, our, our notes, and, uh, and just the way that we interact with your spirit during this time. Jesus, may you be forever praised. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. All right. Before launching into the main body of his sermon, Peter addresses what is immediately on people's minds, and that would be the phenomena of Pentecost. Uh, last week, I, I talked about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and how, and I just mentioned it, how it, it man, it, it, it gripped some people's lives. It empowered them to go out and preach the gospel, the miraculous things or the wondrous things of God, as the text says, in foreign languages. And you heard me say that that particular passage, um, the context of that passage does not allow us to take um, it any further than that. These people were equipped with the languages of the land, not angelic tongues or any of those things. And I don't refute the existence of those things, but what I'm saying is this particular passage does not allow for that. This is the equipping of 120 to go into a feast where there's hundreds of thousands of people to begin to talk about the miraculous things of God. And so, again, the fruit of that was people were awestruck by it and speculating and saying this maybe has to be of God, this has to be something cool, what does this mean? And then there were scoffers, there were some saying drunk. And so before Peter gets into the main body of his sermon, he basically refutes those you know, people for making those scurrilous remarks, remarks about drunkenness. I mean, he just launches this refute right here to these scoffers and towards these scoffers. And he does that in 14 and 15. It says, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And he said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are what? Not drunk. And then he says, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. I like how the text basically says that Peter lifted up his voice. 
he lifted up his voice because he's standing in front of a lot of people. You know, did you ever wonder how Jesus preached like the Sermon on the Mount before thousands of people and other guys preached and Peter preached here in front of all these people? I mean, we've got JBL sound systems now. We've got microphones. I've got a lapel on. This is a tiny room. Really don't need it because uh, you can hear me no matter what. Just ask my wife. I'm loud. But, right, we have all this technology to make things loud, and yet here's Peter standing before a whole bunch of people, no megaphone, praise God, because uh, that's always weird, you know, hey, repent, right? None of that. He doesn't have a sound system. He doesn't have JBL. He doesn't have Amplify. He doesn't have any of that. What does he do? He stands before all these people, and it says he lifts his voice so that he could be heard. He wanted people to hear what he was about to say. And look at how he addressed these people here. He said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. What does he mean by this? Basically what he means to do is to address every living soul that's within earshot. There were people from the area of Judea and from Jerusalem, because that's where this is taking place. This is all taking place more than likely at the temple, but absolutely in the city of Jerusalem, the holy city, uh, so to speak. But he, he, he basically addresses them as men of Judea and those from afar. He's talking and addressing to all people that are present there. And according to the scripture we studied last week, there were people from all over. It says there were devout men from all over, all over these different regions, uh, the area of uh, some of the Roman provinces and from some of the areas down south and from all over. There were people all over there. And so he's addressing all of them. He's not singling out just scoffers. He's not singling out just Jews by birth because there were also proselytes there. He's addressing all people, and that's because the gospel addresses all people, not just this group or that group, and so many Jews believe that the things of God and the words of God and all that is just for them, and he's now making it known that it's not just about you at all. He's addressing all. Now, this is incredible to me because this is a whole different Peter from... 55, 54, 52 days earlier, this same man was trembling and in fear at the words of a young lady by a campfire the night of the Lord's trial. Because she said, uh, I think that guy's a Galilean. I think that guy is, he was with uh, the, the, uh, the guy from Nazareth, the Nazarene. And so she's trying to get him pinched, to get him busted by declaring to everyone that this Peter guy that's here by this fire, sitting there warming his bones, having a, you know, a hot pocket, whatever he was doing, a grilled style, he's there, whatever, he's there at the trial, but he's not inside, he's outside, and, and, and somebody notices him and tries to get him busted. And they're like, hey, this guy was with him. This guy was with him. And what does Peter do? That's right, I was with him. What are you going to do? No, not at all. He freaks out, and he denies the Lord three times that night, does he not? He was timid. He was afraid. He had no courage. And yet here in our text, we see Peter stand up in front of a multitude of people. Fearlessly. What a different Peter we have here. Such is the work of the gospel in people's lives. Such is the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. The gospel makes courageous men out of cowards, does it not? We have a man who is filled with courage here and filled with the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you something right now. That's a dangerous man. 
That's a dangerous man in this kingdom of darkness. The demons tremble at a man who's filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the courage of Jesus Christ and who proclaims the gospel. We've got a different Peter on our hands here. He says, basically, paraphrased, he stands before this multitude and says, listen up, I have something to say. Tune your ears towards me. In the Greek, these are authoritative words. This isn't, hey, I've got something to share with you from my journal. Um, I have a thought. This might really benefit you guys. No, he says, listen up. I have something to say that's of the utmost importance. Turn your ear to me. And I have a feeling that as he was saying that, people were like, yeah, and last week I went bowling and all that, and you know, they were just, just brought to it. And I don't know how they bowled, but they were just brought to attention. And just like, oh, this, this guy, whoa, he stood up and, Maybe we should shut up, Fred, you know. Okay, Bill, you know, or whatever. I mean, he, he speaks with authority here. He says, let me have your attention. He's filled with courage. And then he says the unthinkable. He says, these people that you think are sauced, spent a whole night at Donaby's, they're not drunk at all. In fact, it's only 9 in the morning. Why would they be drunk? Not even drunkards get drunk at 9 in the morning. And this is a truism of that day. The drunkards got drunk at night, it says in the scripture. At night, all kinds of reveling and things happen. And so they're saying, they've got to be drunk. Look at them. Something's going on. They're drunk. And he says, they're not drunk. Listen up. They're not drunk. It's only 9 in the morning. And that's humorous, but it's a rebuke, too. It's, it's as if he's saying, don't attribute the amazing thing that God is doing right now to drunkenness. Isn't that what people do in our society and culture today? They take the miraculous things of God, the amazing things of God, the works of God, the word of God, the spirit of God, the transformation of people's lives. They take those things and they attribute them to what? Beelzebub? To drunkenness, to drugs, whatever it is. I, I don't know what it is, but they're always, we're always taking. Humans always take the things of God and attribute them to something else. We take all of creation and attribute that to Mother Nature. Heaven forbid we'd assign that to a creator, a brilliant creator, the greatest artist ever. No, we take creation and we say, it's Mother Earth, you know, we gotta protect it and bring in the stuff and, and you know, get around trees and don't you cut this tree down, lumberjack, you know? We, we worship the creation. We fashion our idols from the creation. Stone and wood. And, and here, the same thing is happening. People are experiencing something that's just different. And what do they do? They immediately take it and assign it to something wicked and evil. And drunkenness just plainly is, friends. It's not a good thing. It's not a profitable thing by any means. And he says, they're not drunk. They're not drunk. And now he's going to begin to tell them what the phenomena is, what's happening. Why what's happening is happening. Peter is going to take them to a passage of the word of God to point out what's playing out. Oh, you think they're drunk? Let me tell you what's playing out is what he begins to do here. And he begins in 16 by saying, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Peter steers his audience towards Joel 2, 28 
to 32. It's just a little chunk of what Bruce read earlier. Now, this particular passage contains prophetic references uh, for the day of Pentecost as well as for the day of the Lord, which will occur at Christ's return. So it's kind of a double-edged prophetic passage. It has implications for the day of Pentecost, and it has implications for the day of the Lord. It's when Peter was preaching it, it was a present prophecy, and it's a future prophecy. And so often the Word of God has that dual application in its prophecy. Oh, some of it applies now, and much of it applies for later. Now, the thing that gets mixed up is when we try to take it all to the now, and now we begin to precede the Word of God and the prophetic Word of God, and we begin to act out and to practice things that just haven't happened yet. And that's a, that's a danger, and that happens in the church all the time. And so we have a, a dual-edge sort of prophecy playing out in this text. Let's begin to examine it. Let's look at 17, or part of 17, I should say. It says, and in the last days, I'll stop right there. This was a pretty common uh, Old Testament expression. If you look through the Old Testament and survey it, you can look up those words and do a word search there, and it comes up pretty pretty often because so many prophets are speaking in the Old Testament, but that's a pretty common Old Testament expression, and it denotes the time when the Messiah would come to set up his kingdom. It's almost always targeted towards that particular event. Now, we Christians attribute this, uh, we attribute this expression in the last days, we attribute that or tie that to both the first and second coming of Christ. Um, but Jews attribute it to the one and only coming of the Messiah. They don't believe he's come yet. Uh, they don't believe that the, the first visit by the Messiah was the first visit by the Messiah. They see the Messiah as just a conqueror who will come and deal with the Romans or whoever it is that's over them now. Then it was the Romans, and, and probably I would say that they wanted some of those Pharisees to, to pay a little bit too because they were really hard in the religion. Uh, the Herodians for sure, but you know they believe that, man, when the Messiah comes, he's going to come and you know, take care of all our enemies and he's going to establish his kingdom and that'll rule and reign forever and it'll just be glorious for all of us and that's their belief. And so uh, they believe that the last days are attributed to, to that when the Messiah will come the one and only time. Now we tie it to both uh, the first visit and the second coming, or the first coming and the second coming. Now we see in the scriptures very clearly uh, that Christ or the Messiah would come as a suffering servant to die for the sins of sinners, to die for the sins of the world, as it says in Isaiah 53. And then at the second coming, and that's the part that the, the Jews reject, and then and this would have been amazing for them to be hearing uh, or be thinking about these things in the last days because Peter's applying it to the here and now in his context and setting, so this was mind-blowing for them. Um, the second time that our Messiah would come, he would come as a victorious king, and he would establish his earthly throne and kingdom, and we see that in Isaiah 9, 6. And so we see a first and second visit in Scripture clearly. Suffering, glorified. Suffering, glorified. We see both instances in Scripture now. Just some choose to reject that now. Now, here's the, the thing that's really, really cool. When Jesus came for the first time, the period of the last days began. That's what initiated the era of last days was his first coming. Now, there's a bunch of passages, and I just have two that, that illustrate this. Hebrews 1-2 is one of them. It affirms that it says, uh, 
the author of Hebrews says in 1, 2, he says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. He attributes the gospel and what Jesus taught, how Jesus addressed those uh, who he visited, who he came to and spoke to. He, he attributes the last days to that coming. We can see it clearly there. And then 1 Peter 1, 20, we see it again. It says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in what? The last times for what? The sake of the church, for the sake of the elect, for the sake of God's chosen people, for the sake of those he would call to faith. The last days were initiated and began at that time. And so really, in a really cool way, Peter is tying the last days to his sermon. He's telling his audience that these are the last days this is what's happened. Joel prophesied, and now it's coming to pass. It has happened because Jesus came. Now, the last days have now gone on for about 2,000 years. And during that time, God has graciously called Gentiles to salvation, as well as he has chastened Israel for her unbelief. He continues to chasten Israel for her unbelief even today. Why do you think there's so much persecution there, and they're surrounded by so many enemies and they're just constantly under the gun and they have no peace and all that. Do you think that's just because Muslims hate Jews? No, that's because we have a sovereign God who chastens his people. And so often he brings in the enemies from foreign, foreign territories to come in and to mess you up. And that's what we have playing out. And so that period's gone on for about 2,000 years. And yet, because we're in the last days, and I, I'm glad it's taken this long, and, and I hope, I know it sounds terrible, we all want Jesus to come back, but I can think of so many people I'd like to see saved. And the minute that he returns, uh, the chances are that's just not going to happen for them. It's possible still, because he's still saved through tribulation through that period, but uh, you know, we'll get into that in a little bit. So we're in the last days. Now, on the... Um, the last days won't come to, or actually these prophecies that Joel is talking about here, these last day prophecies and things, won't come to complete uh, fulfillment until the coming of the millennial kingdom. Like I said, we have some things that happened at Pentecost, and we have some that will come in the future. On the day of Pentecost, and indeed throughout the church aid, God has given both a preview and sample of the power the Spirit will release in the kingdom. That is absolutely made perfectly clear in Acts 2, 1 to 13, where we see God pour out his spirit, miraculously pour out his spirit, give the gift of tongues so that people can proclaim the gospel to people from all over the world. We see these little glimpses of how the spirit will work and be made manifest during these last days. Awesome stuff. Now look again at 17. It says that God will what? Pour out his spirit on all flesh. Uh, what does Joel mean by this? Some take it to mean that God will pour out his spirit on all living people regardless of their position in Christ. That's what people like Rob Bell and other universalists teach and believe. They believe that when Christ returns or when that last days finally comes to full fulfillment, these prophecies are finalized, that God is just going to pour out his spirit on all people regardless of their position in Christ, and he's just going to save everyone. In fact, he's even going to pour out a spirit on the dead who died without Christ, and they're going to be resurrected into life, into Christ, and all this stuff, and, and blah, 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 blah. Well, uh, the text doesn't mean that. Uh, most of what Joel declared in this prophetic text, with the exception of the miraculous gifts that were given uh, in Acts 2, 1 to 13, as we examined, most of what he has proclaimed here takes place within the context of a future kingdom. Therefore, 
All flesh is a reference to all believers, or to all the redeemed, or to all the elect, or to all of God's kingdom people. See, when Christ returns, God is going to pour out his spirit in a special way upon his church in that kingdom. The Holy Spirit doesn't get poured out upon in a gracious way that's transformational on those who reject Christ. I suppose when God saves someone, he takes someone that's an enemy and he makes them new. No, the Holy Spirit brings conviction and wrath and God's condemnation on him. So we can't deduce from this text that, oh, he's just going to save everyone, just pour out his spirit on everyone and all that. No, these are king, this is kingdom talk here, guys. This stuff takes place in the context of the future kingdom, what's called the millennial kingdom. In the millennial kingdom, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, all flesh meaning all Christians, all believers. What will be the fruit of this special outpouring of God's spirit in the millennial age or the millennial kingdom? Look at the rest of 17 through the end of 18. He makes it clear. He says, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. In that little chunk of text, Joel lists three fruitful things that will come through God's people via that special outpouring and anointing of the Holy Spirit. What does he point out there? He points out prophecy. They'll prophesy. He points out visions. I think it's the young men that'll see visions. I don't know why the young men get the visions. And then I think he says the old men get dreams. (laughs) Young guys get the visions, the old guys get the dreams. What the heck does that mean? Now, yeah, I don't get it. But that's what he says, okay? There's going to be a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit during the millennial kingdom, during that age, that kingdom age, and he's going to pour out the Spirit, and it's going to bring these gifts, the prophecy and visions and dreams. These are kingdom-centered, focused things, and here's the reality of them. We have people that are working diligently to try to figure out what they are, but the Scriptures don't say exactly what prophecies these will be or what visions or what dreams. They're a mystery, These things are mysterious. We don't know what they're going to be or what the prophecies will be about or what the dreams will be about or what the visions will be about. And you know what? I'm glad because I think that some things in the Word of God have to remain a mystery because in our flesh we have the ability to take, to learn the mysteries, and then they just become common to us. They just become commonplace. They just become one more cool thing that's going to happen. I like the fact that they're mysterious. I like the fact that we don't know exactly what they'll be. It just reminds me of the time when I was a young man, a really young man, and every year at Christmas I'd just get so stoked and pumped. It, just, it was stupid. I just, you know, I just couldn't wait to get the presents. It was so bad that me and my cousin would go in. You know, we were like black ops. I mean, you know, we put the stuff on, and we would, at like 1 in the morning, we'd sneak to the tree. And we'd sneak over to it, and we'd take all our presents, and we'd take them into our bedroom, and we'd take a razor blade, and and we'd open them and look at them. And we'd play with them a little bit, you know, and then we'd put them back together, and we'd tape them up real carefully, and we'd... And here's the thing, my grandpa, this guy was like a watchdog. He actually drank martinis, so he was always out at 1 a.m., 
But up until that, I mean, you know, by the fifth one, he was like, just, he was like, you could have done surgery on the guy, right? We'd just wait till that last martini kicked in. But he'd sit out there and he'd be like, he'd just sit there and just rock in his chair and read. And he'd have his glasses pulled down a little bit. And we'd come out, what are you doing? It's 11 o'clock. I just need some milk, you know? And go over. And, and then finally he just, you know, and then we could just sneak in and we'd pull this stuff out and we'd, and, and we'd just, we'd go through it and then we'd tape it all back up and then we'd put it under the tree and then, and then we'd go to bed. And then guess what? When we came out in the morning, we'd just walk out. Yeah. Because we already knew what the stuff was. There was no anticipation. There was no more excitement. We already knew what we were getting. Isn't it the same with the mysterious things of God? No, there's things in Scripture that we just don't know about. And for me, that's really cool because it's like, oh, there's something really amazing coming. There's something awesome coming. I'll probably be an old man by then, so I'll just have the dreams. I won't get the visions, but it's okay. I'm okay with I, I'm okay with dreams, you know. You're not gonna have nightmares in that kingdom, ah, Freddy Krueger. No, you're in the kingdom. Oh, Jesus, you know, you, everything changes. So I like the fact that that these are mysterious and we're not sure exactly what they are, and that we can have joyful anticipation of what's to come. Right? Amen. It's a good thing, you know. And some will be in here and go, No, I must know, and I'm gonna make it my life's work to figure it out. Well, good luck, you know. You'll burn a lot of energy trying to figure that out. There's just some things in here that just aren't revealed. We don't need to know everything. Now, let me tantalize you a little further with this. I love the tantalization. It's a weird word. I don't think I've ever used it before. I don't know if I ever will again. Uh, for <laughs> it's weird. 1 Corinthians 2.9. Oh, what a spectacular passage we have here. No eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Aren't you blessed that some of the things just, we're just not sure. We know something's killer, killer's coming because he says something killer's coming. But we don't know what it is. And so we can, oh, he's got things prepared that, that we just can't even fathom at this point. So wonderful. And so they're going to prophesy and have visions this is what Joel's saying, and they're going to have dreams, and young and old, and male servants and man's. I don't even know what that means. What, they didn't get those kinds of things? The male servants didn't get those kinds of things back in the day? I don't know. I didn't study that part, but that's interesting. But everyone's going to get hooked up, and that's really cool. Let's look at 19. And I will show, oh, here's where it gets heavy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And then he is blood huh? and fire and vapor of smoke. And then he says in 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. Joel goes on to list seven miraculous signs that are associated with with the second coming of Christ. And all of these things are tied to other passages. He talks about those wonders in the heavens above. I believe those things are tied to Jesus' return in Revelation 1-7. I don't have time to read each passage and, and, and to break them down, but you can go out and do some further research. Our manuscripts are all available online at our website, so you can go and get this and print it or whatever, and you can go and look at these passages. But, man, the wonders in the heavens above, it's, it's got to be tied it's got to be tied to Jesus' return. And then we see something incredible, how all these things are going to happen in Revelation 1-7. And then what about those signs on earth below? That's got to be linked 
to Matthew 24, 31, and, and, and also in Revelation chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 11, 12, 16, 18, 21, and 22. The whole book of Revelation is filled with all these signs from heaven, these wonders in heaven, and these signs on earth below. All these things are made manifest in those passages. And what about blood? Blood's good, I guess. That's associated with, it's not in this context, that's associated with Revelation 6, 8, and 8, 7 to 8, and 9, 15, and 14, 20, and 16, 3. Revelation again. What about fire? Fire, fire's good. It's a purifying agent. Fire is associated with Revelation 8, 7, 8, 8, and 8, 10. You know, Joel's just not saying these things, and, and they're not going to be backed somewhere. I mean, these things are backed. These things are found in other places in Scripture, especially in Revelation. Vaporous smoke, again, a little incense action. I don't know what that is. Vaporous smoke is associated with Revelation 9.23 and Revelations chapter 17 and 18. A darkened sun and a moon of blood. Those are associated with Matthew. Uh, with Matthew, where did it go? 24, I believe, 29 to 30. So we can see so clearly that that. Revelation, or that these prophecies that Joel is giving are threaded into other scripture. Joel says these things are going to come in the book of Revelation, and in Matthew it says this is when they'll take place, when the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom. All of these things that Joel mentions are associated, according to Revelation and Matthew, with Christ's second coming. And they're also associated with the judgment and devastation that God will bring upon this earth at the second coming of Christ. Notice how Joel calls the day of the Lord the great and magnificent day. In light of the judgment that's coming upon this earth, it's going to be judgment that we have never seen the likes of throughout all of history. Maybe, maybe the flood. Maybe, maybe that would be the, the closest representation Although, I feel like the flood just took people out and that was it. And this, there's, there, it's kind of a slow pouring out of the bowls of wrath of God on society and on this world. But in light of that, the second coming of Christ and all the judgment that comes with him, because what does he do? He comes back to make war, to deal with his enemies. In light of that, how can Joel call it a great and magnificent day? That's almost like calling the day that Hurricane Katrina hit, that was a great and magnificent day. Huh? How about 9-11? Oh, that was a great and magnificent day. How about just recently when those two earthquakes, one annihilated Haiti and one jacked up Japan? Would it be cool to say that was a great and magnificent day? No. No. Is Joel got a little birdie flying over him? Cuckoo, did you just get it? What? I mean, that just sounds insensitive to me. And that sounds, really? You're going to call that day? the great and magnificent day, and, and in fact, this day will be far worse than anything the world has ever seen. The carnage. One-third of the world's population is killed, murdered, wiped out, devastated. That's a lot of people. That's two billion people. How can he call it this? Well, I'll tell you why and how he can call it this. The day of the Lord is the day where the unjustly tried, condemned, and murdered son, of Christ, murdered son of God, Jesus Christ, is vindicated. 
That's why it's a great and magnificent day. Yes, he had to go to the cross and die. But he died at the hands of sinful men. You and I. And that is the day that the perfect, righteous, holy, amazing, everlasting to everlasting Son of God is vindicated. And that is the day where every saint who has ever suffered at the hands of sinful men will be given justice. It is the day when every wrong done unto the Savior and his bride will be made right. It is the day where Christ will take for himself what is rightfully his on this earth, and that is his throne, his kingdom, and his people. This will be a great and magnificent day for Christ and for his church. It will be glorious. Every bit of persecution you've received for your faith will be dealt with, literally dealt with, by your conquering Messiah. Every wrong, every injustice. You know how many Christians have been martyred over the centuries? Thousands and thousands. In fact, thousands are being killed in the Sudan today. Two-thirds of the Christian church in North Korea is in prison. The day of the Lord is a wonderful and magnificent day in that God will make things right for his son and for his people. But it'll be a tragic day for those who are outside of Christ. Unspeakable horror. All the more reason to get the gospel out there. But not all of the lost will be lost forever. Not all of the lost who are dealt with by the messianic king at that time will be dealt that fatal blow of judgment and eternity in the lake of fire. Not all of them will, because that's not what the scripture says. Look at 21. Yeah, many will experience the wrath of God for all eternity, but not all of them, because it says in 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, what shall be saved? This is so incredible here because even when God comes to judge the world and to deal with sinners and those who have rebelled against him and, 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 and done horrific things against him in his name throughout all of eternity, or not eternity, but throughout all of creation or the existence of the world. Not, I mean, during this time when he comes to deal the death blow, the gospel's still going to go out. It says, that, it says that, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. Guess what? The gospel is still going to go out during that time. It's a short time, but it's still going to go out. And God is still going to save people through the blood of his Son. 
know, even during that time where he's unleashing and, and those angels are pouring out those bowls of his, of his wrath and, and, and justice upon a deserving world. The world deserves it. We deserve it. He's still going to rescue people through the gospel. Now, the verse has a dual application. It is tied directly to the tribulation period that will begin at the Lord's return, and it extends to the time of Jesus' first coming, and I believe even beyond that. Peter goes on to explain this in great detail in the rest of his sermon. We're just going to start looking at that probably next week. But the fact that even though he's pouring out his wrath and judgment upon a world that's deserving of it at that time, it's awesome, and it's such a great representation of his grace and mercy that he's still going to call people unto salvation. He's still going to save people. He's still going to draw people unto himself. You know, we exist in an era of grace. We dwell in an era where God rescues sinners from imminent doom and eternal destruction through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's going to happen during that time of judgment when Christ returns, but it's happening now. We're in an era of grace. The gospel still goes out. God's still calling people to himself. Now, we've got to be really, really careful with verse 21, though, in that it can be misinterpreted, and it has been. We have to be careful with it. Look at the word Lord. People must recognize, affirm, and submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. You know, it doesn't say you can call out to Jesus. It doesn't say that you can call out to the Savior or the Messiah or the good prophet or the guy who was really good when he came and he was really kind and he was just a great guy. It doesn't say you can call out to the prophet. That's what Muslims call Jesus. He's just a prophet. You can't call out to him, prophet, save me. No, 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 no. It's critical and crucial that we understand what Scripture teaches. He is what? The Lord. And that comes with a whole list of implications. He must be seen as, received as, and submitted to as Lord in order for someone to be saved. Now, I get it. When I first got saved, I'm not sure if I understood all that. But true salvation is going to come with a sanctifying process of where you'll learn that lordship and you'll begin to get those things and you'll begin to submit areas of your life to them over a period of time. So I'm not saying that you have to understand all those things right up front, but it's critical and crucial that you understand the lordship of Jesus because that comes with massive biblical implications. Massive, huge. When a person receives Jesus as Lord, they must humbly submit to his rule and governance over their lives. There are thousands upon thousands and maybe even millions of people in the world today who have called upon the name of Jesus and yet they live in a fashion that is contrary to the scriptures and his kingdom. They don't live lives of submission to a king or to the king, King Jesus. They basically live for themselves. They claim to follow Jesus and at the same time they indulge in all forms of immorality all forms of debauchery, all forms of wickedness, and it seems like they don't even bat an eye when they do it. So many of these people have prayed some sort of prayer, save me, and then there's nothing that changes. There's no difference. There's no lordship there. You see, 
Lord means sovereign ruler. It means sovereign king. And for us to receive him as Lord means that we submit to his kingship and to his leadership. And that we live lives that represent his kingdom and his rule and his reign, his sovereignty. That we're obedient to his commands, as it says in Matthew 28. Teach them all the commands, to obey all the commands. That's what it means to worship him and to follow him as Lord, that we submit. How many people have you met in your life that claim to be Christian? And act, there's no submittance to Jesus. They just do whatever they want, and yet they call themselves a Christian. See, this person is either a false Christian or extremely immature, and they don't understand that they have a king who rules them. Now, let me tell you, he's a benevolent king. To be ruled by him is the greatest honor and privilege. It fills you with joy, purpose, peace. It's not like the ruler of this world who fills you with strife and anger and confusion and pride. The ruler of this world, Satan, that's what he fills you with. But see, the benevolent king, King Jesus, fills you with peace that transcends all understanding. See, there's a difference in someone who gets the lordship. Okay, he's my lord. I now bow my knee to the one with nail-scarred hands. He's the king. He's going to rule and reign. There's a difference, see, in just receiving him as something other than that. And so many have. We must understand lordship. We have a king. If, if we can't learn to be ruled by him now, how are we going to learn it in the coming kingdom? If we just do whatever we want now, do you think that's going to be the way that it is in his kingdom, that you can just do? I mean, you just, no. We need to practice kingdom living now in this day and age. We have a king, friends. He's sovereign. Failing to recognize, affirm, and submit to the lordship of Jesus is a fatal mistake. It is to fall short of biblical salvation. Even Jesus himself claimed the title of Lord. Before his ascension, he announced his lordship by telling his disciples, back in the passage I quoted, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Only a lord or the lord has that level of management and leadership. Control over all things. All of them have been given to you. Everything in heaven, everything on earth has been given to you. You, you, you rule over all of that. Guess what? A, 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 a department manager doesn't get that level of responsibility. The chairperson does. You know what I'm saying? I was a department manager at Home Depot. It was messy. I didn't have a whole lot of power. I just had a little bit of power over these people. Go clean up the tile. Ah, you know, and that was it. But there was somebody over me going, hey, you go do this. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, whatever. You know? I usually talk about them behind their backs. Yeah. If, if, if it's all been given unto you, under your sovereign rule, leadership, man, that's, that's the position of Lord. You see, he declares all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. What? I'm at the highest high, man. I'm at the top. I'm at the top of the food chain. So... Go out and make disciples. Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has what made him who Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We're going to study that. 
That's an amazing passage. Made him what? Lord and Christ. Lord over all, over all. Over your soul, your salvation, your physical life, over your finances, over your household, over your children, over every aspect of your life. That's what it means to be Lord. He has it all. He's over all of it. You have to ask yourself this question, believer. What areas of your life is he not sovereign over? Oh, he's got you here and he's got you here and he's got you here, but he doesn't have you here in this area. This is an area where you're still running loose with it. You're just running crazy over here in this little compartment. No, no, Lord means over all. Oh, he's the Lord of my salvation, yes, but my life is mine. <laughs> no, that doesn't work, man. That doesn't work at all. This is why his calls to discipleship were so hard and heavy for people. Take up your cross. He talked about what it means to be a kingdom person. He talked about what it means to be ruled over by him. And it was just too hard for some people because why? They just didn't want to relinquish control of their own lives. That's a submittance to all that he is and all that he's taught and who he is. That's what it is. We must receive him as Lord. And so in those last days, even now, but in those last days when everything is breaking loose on earth and God is pouring out his wrath, there will be people that are so pressed by everything that's happening, the devastation, the destruction, all that they're seeing and witnessing, because what? There's going to be things that are happening on earth and from heaven and all these things and all these signs and the moon and all these things are going to happen. It's going to be unbelievable. You're not going to be able to deny it. There's a trumpet blast that the whole world will see. You know, what was that? I mean, it, and then he comes, and everyone can see it and hear it, and it's going to be unbelievable. And yet through that, there are going to be some that are so pressed by all of it that they're going to scream and cry for mercy. And they're going to call what? Upon the name of the Lord, and they shall be saved. You know, we always have new people in, in our church every week. We have people that are here all the time, and we have new people too. And I just have to ask this question. Have you made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Have you surrendered yourself to his kingship and care? Are you trusting in Jesus who exercises authority over the heavens and the earth? Are you trusting in that Jesus, that Lord Jesus, for your present and future salvation? Because salvation isn't just what's to come. It's now. It's so glorious. It's now. It drips with the grace of God. It's so wonderful to be saved by him in this life. It is so wonderful. I, 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 can't, I can't compare it to the life that I had before him. There's no comparison. This life was terrible. And this life is spectacular. And that doesn't mean that it's not difficult at times. It is. Jesus made a promise. I love you. I'll never leave you. He also made another promise. In this life, you'll have trouble. <laughs> but I'll never leave you or forsake you. Oh, okay. Are you an ambassador of Christ's kingdom now? That's what Peter refers to us. We're aliens and strangers to this world. We just don't quite fit in because we're kingdom people. But we're here. 
and we're, 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 we're serving the kingdom and, and worshiping Jesus, the king of the kingdom, who's going to come and, and, and fully, fully bring that kingdom into fruition? Are you an ambassador of that kingdom now? Or the great question is, or do you represent the world and its kingdom of money, lust, power, politics, whatever those things are? I mean, what kingdom... Do you belong to? Are you an ambassador of this world? Or are you an ambassador of Christ's kingdom, which is to come? If you have yet to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, might I suggest that you do that now? Why would you wait any longer? Life is like a vapor. It can be gone in a flash. It's unpredictable. It just, it just, it's just gone. I, I, I couldn't help but think about the tragedy that happened a, a week ago or a week and a half ago where two men went to a house just to drill the lock out to, to get somebody out, and guess what? They didn't even see the bullets coming. They shot through the door. A locksmith and a sheriff. You didn't ever thought that would have happened to them that day. I don't think they ever dreamed that. Or else they wouldn't have approached the house that way, would they have? And what? They're there doing their job, and they're killed. They couldn't even defend themselves. You could drive in a car and just be driving and just get hit, get in a wreck. My friend Mo did that years ago. He's been in a coma basically ever since. I mean, just, it just life is a vapor. There's no guarantees here in the physical. So why would you wait any longer? Eternity is forever. It's a long time, man. You're going to spend that time in the torments of hell or with Christ in his kingdom forever where there's joy and peace. And, and guess what? We read it. Some of that stuff's going to get poured out on you. You're going to prophesy. And, I mean, there's just amazing things that come with it. Why would you wait any longer? Are you afraid? Do you think that you have to get cleaned up before you can make a move? Because guess what? God doesn't receive cleaned up people. He only takes the dirty ones. Messy. Sinful. Yeah. That's what the gospel does. He says, I didn't come. I didn't come as a doctor just, you know, just, just for those who are well. No, 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 no. I came for the sick. See, those who are sick with sin. Those who are messed up, you can't clean yourself up. You can't make your robes as white as snow as he can. So you don't have to have fear that he won't receive me because look at me. I know what I've done. I know what's in my heart. I, no. He'll take you just as you are. So why wait? Why hesitate? Call out to Jesus in your heart, in your spirit, and confess your sins to him. He knows what you've done. Just bring those things before his throne of grace. Ask the Lord to cleanse you by the power of his blood. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. The Lord's ear is ever open to all who cry out for mercy and grace. And his arm is not too short to pull you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's not rocket science. Father, 
thank you for your word. And I just want to personally thank you now for your son and for what he did on that cross. And that somehow he was thinking of me long before any of that stuff even took place. And then on that cross, he took all my sin. He became sin for us. And then he gave me and others his perfect righteousness because he was a perfect law-abiding servant of God. He did nothing wrong. He didn't breach any of the law. He fulfilled it. Happily and joyfully, obedience he exercised towards the law, and he did it perfectly. And because of that, he can take a dreadful sinner like me, and he can take all my filth on him and give me his perfection. What a trade. There's no better trade. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Thank you for your blood, Lord Jesus. Washes away sin. Makes us new in you. God, I pray for those here that may not know you yet, God, that you would continue to do a great work in their life. May your grace overwhelm them. Your mercy, your love. And for us who will continue to fight the good fight this week, God, we need your grace every bit as much as those who do not yet know you. Oh, do we need your grace this week. What a rough week last week was for me and for others. Thank you so much. You pour out your mercy and grace and forgiveness in abundance. No one can stop the flow but you. Thank you for that Christ Jesus today. Thank you for your word. Take all these truths, your wonderful truths, and apply them to our lives. May we serve you faithfully this week as we go out and make disciples of this community, of every nation. May we have a wonderful time in communion together now, celebrating the cross and the finished work, your finished work, that we don't have to do anything but believe, and you even give us grace to do that. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and all of God's people said, amen. All right, friends, we've got a little bit of time to, to take communion. I do want to say that this is for the Lord's people. Um, you know, if you're outside of Christ, you don't want to take communion. It's not a good thing for you to do. The scripture forbades it. So, But we want to take it just in light of the cross and what's been done for us. And we'll sing our last song and we'll get out of here. But uh, the elements are right back there. So you can receive them as you will and sit down and take them in your own leisure. We don't take them together or anything. So may this be a sweet time just for you to be with Jesus, reflecting upon his finished work in, in some of the things that we learned today. So much is yet to come. Marvelous things. And we can rejoice in that, and I'm so glad we don't know exactly what all of them are. Some of them we do. The most important things, I suppose, we do. But may we reflect on that now. Enjoy your time.